Welcome to STR Stronger Together Meet the Scholar, episode 24, featuring uh, Dr. Anita McGinn from University of Toronto. Uh, my name is Zhao Lo. I'm from University of Minnesota. Uh, I'm a STR Executive Committee uh, member and your moderator for today's session. I'm joined by Pito Shayton from Monash University, who's our dedicated membership engagement officer and manager for today's session. Thank you, Titoj. Um, also with us is Samina Karim, our fearless leader and STR division chair, who made this summer's STR Stronger Together uh, activities possible. Thank you, Samina. Um, so as many of you know, this is also the grand finale for our Meet the Scholar series. And I personally cannot think of a better way to conclude this season than having this unique opportunity to interview Anita. So welcome everyone. Thanks for being together with the STR division this unusual summer. And also welcome Anita. It's so nice, so nice to see you. See you again. Thank you very much for doing this. It's really an honor to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So um, before we start, let me spend a few minutes introducing Anita and highlight some of her achievement to date. Oops. Um, so Anita is the university professor at, the, um, at Toronto, uh, where she is professor of strategic management and George E. Uh, Conwell chair in organizations and society at the Rotman School. Uh, while she also is cross-appointed at the School of uh, Global Affairs and Public Policy, as well as the medical school. Uh, previously, she was at HBS and uh, um, Boston U. Um, she also held a visiting professorship at Harvard Medical School, LBS, Stanford, as well as Australian Graduate School. Um, Anita got her PhD in Business Economics from Harvard University. Um, she has numerous amount of awards and uh, recognitions across the spectrum uh, of uh, research, teaching, and service. So she is a fellow of the uh, Academy, uh, Academy of Management as well as a fellow of uh, SMS. Uh, she has won the Career Distinguished Educator Award from AOM uh, in 2012, as well as um, you know two awards from our own division, the Urban um, Edu Distinguished Educator Award in 2010 as well as the Distinguished Service Award uh, in 2008. Uh, she has many, many teaching awards, um, um, including graduation speakers, professor of the years, uh, as well as many research grants uh, from um, SSHRC uh, in Canada, MacArthur Research Network on Opening Governance, as well as the Brookings Institute uh, as a few examples. Um, moving to the editorial service front, uh, she has served as SMJ Associate Editor uh, for eight years and prior to that uh, Management Science Associate Editor for a decade. Uh, in the meanwhile, she was co-editor for a lot of, you know, very influential special issues uh, for SMJ, GSJ, SEJ, GEMS, uh, as well as advances in strategy management. Uh, in the meanwhile, she's also on editorial boards uh, for a lot of uh, uh, a dozen journals uh, at the same time. Um, Professional leadership, uh, you know, as many of you know, Anita served as AOM president uh, in, uh, uh, in Board of Governance between 20, uh, 2013 to 18. She was uh, our division chair uh, and on the leadership team between 2003 and 2008. She was at Rotman uh, Associate Dean in research as well as directors 
a PhD program between 2010 and 15. She's also chair at YFBU for the area of uh, strategy and policy between 2002 and 2004. Uh, and that's, you know, that's not, that's not yet. <laughs> she, she's also on, uh, 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 she's also expert advisor uh, for um, WHO, USA, the Aspen Institute, Grand Challenges, Canada, as well as Massachusetts General uh, Hospital. So definitely something that we'd love to come back to. She published, uh, in the meanwhile, she published over a hundred articles uh, and three books. Uh, her Google citation um, uh, as of yesterday was uh, is over 11,000. Um, so her research, as many of you know, is on industry change, sustainable competitive advantage, and the establishment of new fields. In particular, she's written a lot um, on global health and the diffusion of knowledge across international boundaries. So um, let me invite all of, um, all of you to um, get off the mute and give Anita a warm applause um, as well as welcome. Thank you, everyone. It's so nice, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us today. Um, so we like to start these interviews uh, by, you know, asking you, you know, where, uh, what's your background as well as what led you to academia. So shall we, shall we start there? Sure thing. Um, thank you so much for that generous introduction. And everyone, thank you for joining. I know it's uh, such a busy time with the Academy starting up in the next couple of days. And, you know, you've done 23 of these. So thank you. I notice uh, many of you have been on pretty much all of them, you know, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge investment of time, but also a wonderful, uh, I think a, a wonderful innovation. I just want to applaud the leadership of the division for being so innovative and creative and constructive at uh, at this time. It's it's really just been a joy to be a part of the community. So thank you very much for that. So I'm a native of New York City. I was born in uh, Queens, New York, uh, which is a borough of New York City uh, in 1960. My parents were both from the Bronx. Um, and uh, really, I in a way feel like I'm from the Bronx since my parents just moved across the bridge to get a little bit away from their own parents, but it were basically failed at that. I mean, we, you know, every weekend we were at our, I was at my grandparents' house. Uh, so it's, it's, um, you know, my, my roots are there. Uh, my parents were very young when I was born and uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, people, both incredibly nice, generous, smart people, very committed to education and, uh, uh, preserving people, our health. So, you know, my uh, upbringing was, you know, by, uh, you know, people in their, my early years were, my parents were both um, in the 1960s were civil rights activists, were marching in New York, in parades, very active, lots of energy. Um, and, uh, you know, I really benefited from that. I have two younger brothers who um, uh, also benefited from that. So very, uh, very lucky to grow up in a family that was so uh, engaged in the world and uh, to have such wonderful role models. Both of my parents were teachers. Uh, my mother was a, a second grade teacher and my father was a high school English teacher, although they each also left teaching to pursue business careers. Both of them did uh, uh, over time and were great role models. My undergraduate um, 
my undergraduate degree was in uh, social and political thought. So it's really humanities and political science, um, political philosophy. And one of the really wonderful things that, uh, that happened to me when I was in college at Northwestern in uh, the late 1970s and early 1980s was I had a tremendous, tremendous mentor, someone I just had dinner with last week. Her name is Jane Mansbridge. She's uh, the former head of the American Political Science Association. Uh, and she and her husband, uh, Christopher Jenks, who's quite an eminent sociologist, really uh, looked after me when I was in college. I wrote my senior thesis with, uh, with Jenny and um, was on Aristotelian uh, distributive justice and uh, equal opportunity. And, uh, you know, very, very, took a strong interest in me and really uh, advocated for me uh, to make good choices, which was, you know, fantastic. So I graduated from uh, Northwestern. I had applied while uh, in college uh, uh, to business schools at Jenny's suggestion uh, because she felt like, uh, you know, I was, uh, I had the, the capacity to um, solve practical problems. So I, sh I should say that I was president of my college. You know, I started a couple companies in college. I worked when I was, um, uh, I worked full-time selling stereos to put myself through college um, and I was able to do that. I, I, I had my first, I would get up in the morning and be a lifeguard in the mornings before school. Then I had a job delivering the mail at lunch and then after school I would go sell stereos and on the weekends um, uh, to get, you know, to get, to be able to make the, 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 the resource equation work. And um, Jenny, uh, I wanted to do philosophy and she thought that I would be much happier if I didn't get too involved with the kind of linguistic approach to philosophy and, and, and went to business school. So I applied, got into Harvard Business School, deferred it for two years, went and worked on Wall Street, um, home to New York uh, and worked on Wall Street, then uh, graduated from HBS, uh, and went to McKinsey for a couple of years. And then uh, one of my clients at McKinsey was uh, John MacArthur, the former dean of uh, HBS. And he uh, um, encouraged me to apply for a dean's fellowship. And I went back and got my PhD in business economics. And that was really, that was really the launch of my career. I had an incredible uh, advisor in Dick Caves who already has come up in uh, these, the prior 23 <laughs> Uh, uh, interviews and and Dick was also an amazing mentor. Uh, so my first book is actually dedicated to Jenny Mansbridge and Dick Caves. So uh, yeah, very I was very fortunate uh, to to have great mentors and and and, and role models. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, and um, you know, you mentioned um, going back to kind of HBS the and doing the PhD. Um, and the the thing that's you know super. Um, Super impressive. One of the super impressive thing when you look at the CV is you did your PhD in two years. Um, so how was that? How was that process like? And um, you know, did you did you go in and say I'm gonna get it as soon as possible? Or so you know, um, the 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 program was a four year program, and right. many people were taking five years, um, and uh, you know, in 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 retrospect, it was really Dick's decision, Dick Caves' decision for me to get the degree in two years. You know, for, for decades, I thought, oh, I don't know what happened. I, you know, 
I was so lucky. I, I, I did work really hard and I loved it. So that there was that, but a lot of people work really hard and love it, <laughs> you know, I, and, and are lucky, you know, the data worked out and stuff like that. But right. I think it really actually was Dick's decision um, to make that happen. So um, just to give a little nuance to that, um, and, you know, everybody on this call, I feel as a friend, you know, many of you are amazing mentors yourselves and have uh, uh, so many accomplishments. So I'll just, I'll just, I'll just share with you that, you know, um, I, I wrote a couple of uh, papers for my courses. My first, you know, first two years of doctoral program, you're doing the core courses, and mm -hmm. second year you're doing your elective, your elective work. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a couple of papers. Dick, you know, gave me these detailed feedback and so on, and then he encouraged me to submit them to journals. You know, and I was like, submit them to journals? You know, these are papers for classes. They're not parts mm -hmm. of my dissertation. And he said, you know, I think, yeah, I think it's going to have, I think it's going to work out. And I think, in retrospect, I think he really championed uh, the papers with the editors and, you know, wanted them to get, and I had a couple publications at the end of my, uh, my first year uh, seminar papers, papers I wrote for classes. Um, right. And then um, he encouraged me to take my orals early. I took them in uh, February 16th uh, of my second year instead of at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And then I had a third paper and I remember going to his office in about May of my second year. And he said, you know, Anita, you have three published papers and uh, you've done your orals. You've hit the requirements to graduate. And, um, and I, said, I said to him, well, I have another year of funding and I'm happy. So I don't think I want to do that. And I went home to my apartment and then I went, I, I, I got in my apartment door and I, I looked around and I was like, I'm going to go back because he was holding office hours. And I turned around and I went back and I was like, did you just tell me I could graduate? And he said, you know, I think it'd be a good idea. And when I look back, what he was really doing is there was very few women in the, in mm -hmm. the, and, you know, I think, as you know, I have an intersectional, uh, intersectional, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, vulnerability in being gay. And, and I think mm -hmm. he really, I mean, we never talked about that. Um, uh, Dick himself is a lifelong bachelor, you know, um, you know, he, he, I think he really wanted me, he was trying to, he didn't think yeah. that Harvard Econ Department was going to support me. And he was trying to get me into a situation where it would be a little in your face to those guys <laughs> to graduate me uh, early and would get me into a better environment. So I don't think you can really underestimate the impact of senior people who champion you uh, and, and realize, you know, your, 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 what you might be able to accomplish. Yeah. Well, he sounds like an amazing, amazing advisor um, and who really looked after your interests. So, um, you know, do you have any suggestions for, um, you know, we have maybe a couple of PhD students here. Do you have any suggestions to them in terms of, the doctoral program in general as well as how do you kind of you know think about the advisor advisee relationship well i mean there's as many models as there are people right. in our profession but you know I, you do need i feel that you need some really strong elements of connection to your advisor and right. there's a lot of different ways to achieve that elements of connection you know um uh you know, many people who are here, Manuela is here, you are my student. Thank you for joining. It's wonderful to see you. Um, 
you know, I feel like Samina, even though you weren't my people I've known for a long time that, um, that, uh, you know, I really care about, you know, and, and believe in and, you know, um, the world is really pretty messed up. So for someone who's senior, you know, when you see a young person with a lot of talent who you feel can, you know, contribute a great deal, it's incredible privilege to be able to look after that person's development. So finding someone who feels that way about you for whatever reason, you know, um, that authentic, authentic uh, commitment to you and your success is, is, you know, that I think is the, is, 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 is the game. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, so from, um, after the PhD, you joined, um, HBS as a faculty member. And, um, so how, how was that like at HBS, uh, in the business school kind of, you know, well, you know, I, <laughs> go ahead. Me. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Oh, uh, just, you know, moving, but not moving. Right. Yeah. So, um, I uh, was on the faculty at HBS during a particular heyday at, L, L, at uh, HBS, you know, so it was very much the era of Michael Porter's, you know, impact and Pankaj was there and Adam Brandenberger was there. And, you know, it was like um, that, that particular group, it was, you know, people, people were beginning to uh, sort of come on on the stage like Jan Rivkin was a doctoral student, you know, Nikolai Sigelko was a doctoral student. So it was it was a particular period at HBS that was very oriented toward IO economics. Because you know, some people coming in like David Yaffe and so on uh, with uh, different orientations, but the, certainly the center of gravity of the group was in IO economics. And I think I th for me, that was, it was super exciting. You know, it's, it's an incredible experience to teach at the school where you have your degree. So to act, I mean, precisely being in the classroom, you know, um, and Mike Porter was a tremendous teaching mentor to me. You know, he really taught me stuff like trust your students and a lot of things that many of you have heard from me about teaching, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, um, you know, he, he, you know, he, of course, had been my, one of my MBA teachers, was not on my committee. Um, it, it, you know, it was a, it, it, it was, it was a whirlwind of that, um, that uh, very, it's almost like a LBS almost picked up a little bit of that environment of being, you know, kind of more committed to practice and people were doing a lot of consulting, starting companies, faculty members starting companies and things like that. So it was, it was, and of course I had John MacArthur, the Dean, it was the person who had sort of brought me into that community. And there was a lot of tension in the school about research orientation versus teaching and practice orientation that still hasn't been fully resolved, I don't think. So it was it was very exciting, but it was also very tense because of that. Yeah. So uh, I mean, so you mentioned teaching. So let me follow up on that. Things um, that's part of one of the big transition, right? As one go from the doctoral program to uh, assistant uh, professorship. And um, in your career, you've written a lot of cases, and you've also you know developed lots of course mod modules on various different subjects. Um, so how do you think about this? Um, 
teaching and research loop, uh, as some people call it. How do they feed into each other or how do they feed into each other? Well, um, there's, there's a lot of uh, different ways in which those, you know, teaching and research interact. So one of the things that, um, that uh, I, I've, I've always tried to um, do as a teacher is, is show up, <laughs> by which I mean, mm -hmm. you know, actually be myself, not be, you know, presenting something different than what I believe is true. Uh, so um, part of, for me, the, so let me just offer a couple of thoughts about this. So for example, when I teach you the core, the core strategy curriculum, mm -hmm. um, for me, uh, everything that I took into the classroom when I was, I've taught the strategy core course for almost 30 years now, I can't <laughs> seem to get out of it, you know, um, but I, 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 uh, you know, I, 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 I try to use the frameworks to figure out what's going on in, in situ first in cases when I was a younger professor, but now in situations that I feel my students are going to be interested in. So I no longer rely exclusively on HBS cases. Of course, they are not being developed at the same rate as which they once were developed. Um, uh, so, uh, for example, I teach off videos, and I've been teaching off videos, a case on Tesla and how, how is Elon Musk got to run this company to fulfill the valuation, the stock price valuation. That, of course, leads us uh, from direct answers to that question in the conversation of why would you ever want to do that, you know, which is really what I'm interested in having them think about, you know, why would you ever want to drive up the stock price and then should you care about investors or should you be managing for stakeholders and you know that that's the rich conversation so you know meeting your students where you are where they are has your actual self bringing everything you stand for and know um uh into the classroom including everything you've learned through research is to me what makes teaching a joy um you know, dusting off some old notes and 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 basically reading a script to me is a lost opportunity. As Costa said the other day, being a good teacher is not a very high bar. You know, really trying to get the students to do something amazing with their lives—that's the—that's uh, the opportunity. And they, you know, they really listen to you. They really, really care what you think, and they listen to you. And it's really tough on them. So if you can, you know, I feel incredibly lucky to have been alive during the time that I've been alive. You know, uh, it's, it's very hard to deal with all the challenges around us. Now, I have amazing faith in these young people in my classrooms. They're unbelievable. They're so impressive. Helping them stand on the shoulders of my generation that's messed the world up, you know, is, is, what I try to do. And I, you know, half of what I teach is wrong. And if I knew which half, I wouldn't teach it. That's awesome. Um, Mike, so Mike Jensen said that to me once in a classroom, Michael Jensen. He said, half of what we teach is wrong. And if we knew which half, we wouldn't teach it. <laughs> I say that to my students. And <laughs> they're like, does that mean we don't have to come at the time? <laughs> right. 
Yes, uh, you don't have to come half the time. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so let me let me also you know kind of ask during uh, during your period at HBS is also when you uh, on the research front is also when you published um, the piece on how much does ingestion matter, which is you know super super influential. So uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about you know the story behind that paper? Sure. Um, so. It's so funny, I just talked to Michael Porter um, maybe about a week ago. Sometimes he just calls me, you know, <laughs> to, like I'll be at an airport and the phone will ring and, you know, he'll be like, Mike, Anita, it's Mike. I just want to say hi. How are you? <laughs> you know, um, so uh, Michael Porter and I, as well as I think one or two other faculty members, um, were uh, sitting outside uh, the classroom uh, during a final exam back in the early 90s. And you know how you have to wait and see, you know, have to sit there in case the students have questions uh, during a proctored exam in case they come out and ask you questions. And we use that time every year at HBS to just debrief the course. So we'd be sitting out, you know, at a, at a, uh, a, a table in between the classrooms and we'd go through all the cases, what worked, what didn't work, what do we want to change next year, kind of, you know, and we were trying to figure out how much time do we want to spend on industry structure? How much time do we want to spend on competitive positioning and, you know, competitive resources and how much on corporate strategy? And we started to have this conversation. Well, we, we don't know, you know, we don't know how much of, why don't we think about how much of performance of companies is associated with each of those things? So it turned out to not be so simple to do that analysis. Some people had, um, had been working on that. Dick Rumelt had a paper on that. So did uh, Richard Schmollenzi. But there were each of those studies was limited by the available data. So some new data had just become available. And so I started work on it. And, uh, you know, um, I don't know, as a junior professor or assistant professor. And, you know, Mike, he really spent a lot of time trying to think about, you know, how are we going to get closer to this? What about the methods? I think we wrote, I can't remember, maybe five or six different papers on, on that topic. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's how we got into it, you know? Mm -hmm. And now, of course, I'm interested in other dimensions of performance and only profitability and trying to think, oh, can we redo a re variance decomposition analysis hmm. on, uh, you know, SDGs, you know? Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> um, and, um, um, and I want to, I mean, kind of continue on the, on the research path. Well, before that, actually, um, in terms of the, um, you know, assistant professors, right? Uh, so we also have a number of assistant professors here. So thinking back to, you know, your um, period as assistant professor, are there things that, you know, you wish you had knew um, at the time? So are the things that I wish I knew. It's hard for me to separate out the rank of being an assistant professor from the experience of being in my 30s, you know? Um, and what you know and don't know when you're in your 30s versus what you do and don't know right. as an assistant professor. Uh, what do I wanna say about being an assistant professor? Um, don't give up the best years of your life, some of the best years of your life, in pursuit of stuff that's not important. <laughs> So that means that, for me anyway, my advice would be make sure that the empirical setting is important. Mm -hmm. Make sure that 
you have a you that you know what's important to you intellectually um that you have some sense of some deep sense of your own interests so that you can make good decisions about project selection mm -hmm. and uh you know to to, to um there's there's a there's a great deal of change in our field, a great deal of evolution of ideas in our field and so on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's important to be, to be at least on an, a big enough wave that you can be carried forward uh, as your ideas accumulate. One of the challenges I had at, at HBS is mm -hmm. I was in such a strong group with such a, a very dominant paradigm that it was difficult for me to get support um, or to, to find my way uh, out of that paradigm. I remember when Jay Barney came to give a seminar in uh, Harvard at Harvard Business School when he was an associate professor and uh, I think I was still a doctoral student and the group really could not follow what he was talking about. Resource-based view, uncertainty, um, that's, I think that's the best, most diplomatic way to put that, okay? And, uh, you know, it, I remember as a doctoral student thinking, this is really interesting. He's talking about risk, he's talking about uncertainty, he's talking about commitments, under uncertainty. That was an idea that was very influential, for example, for Pankaj. You know, that idea of uh, commitments under uncertainty, that was really a subject of a book that, that Pankaj was, was involved with. And, you know, okay, so sometimes, it's, you know, a seminar speaker doesn't, doesn't necessarily get um, a swell of support from a seminar audience the way they deserve to get. But I thought, wow, this is really interesting is uh, they are so related to each other in their, in their intellectual heritage and in the way they think that they're not excited about, as excited about these ideas as they might be. Now, of course, that changes over time and Jay's been amazingly successful. And as you know, uh, an incredible uh, friend of mine uh, and someone I deeply, deeply uh, care about and, 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 am, and am identified with and engage with. Um, but, uh, you know, making sure you know what, you know, where your course is, what you're interested in, and finding your way forward and not letting any institution, you know, cause cause you to deviate from what you really think is important. I think that's 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 something that uh, I would I would encourage in everybody who's an assistant professor. Great first age advice, thank you. Um, so fast forward to I think mid two thousand, and that's when you started to shift gear a little bit in terms of research focus. I think. Um, so, could you tell us about that? So, uh, so you know, I got tenure in 1999 um, right. at BU, which was BU was a great experience. I was there for I don't know, six six years and then a sabbatical year. Samina, uh, you and I overlap there. I was the department chair that hired you, um, so thank you very much for saying yes uh, to that. Um, and then, you know, we had, we, Manuela was there, so Manuela, look at you, uh, uh, so successful. And, you know, um, you know, um, so uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago how 
uh, the, there was this mandated HBS in terms of what they found to be valuable research during that period. So, Zhao, uh, this was, it wasn't so much that my interest changed, it's that the constraints were removed. Mm -hmm. Does that in make some, sense? In some ways, you're returning to your, uh, you know, the thesis, undergraduate thesis you're, you're exploring in distributed yes. justice, I think. Yes, that's right. Distributed justice. So uh, just a few um, remarks on that. So uh, I have always written um, cases on healthcare companies, wheelchair companies, pharmaceutical companies, you know, insurance companies. And, uh, you know, the book that I wrote when I was at HBS, a lot of the um, research uh, papers that I did were in contexts that involved or touched on healthcare. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I now describe my interest as private entrepreneurship in the public interest, uh, because I'm not just only working on healthcare, but also on fire departments and policing and, and uh, private prisons and things like that. So, um, so, so uh, uh, John MacArthur, who I mentioned, had uh, known me since I was an MBA candidate and knew me when I was at McKinsey, knew that I had this interest in the public interest, that I was working on the public interest. And John was on the board of Partners in Health in uh, 2004 period. And he, so Partners in Health is Paul Farmer's um, uh, organization that works, uh, Jim Kim and Paul Farmer founded, Ophelia Dahl was the executive director, wonderful people, pretty small organization at that time in Boston. There's a book that's written about Paul Farmer called Mountains Beyond Mountains, written about all of them, but especially about Paul. And it started to bring them a lot of attention and a lot of resources. It's a bestseller called Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's still a great book I recommend. Um, and uh, uh, the board of directors of Partners in Health was like all the deans of the Harvard schools and a bunch of people that were like running Partners Healthcare and CEOs of pharmaceutical companies. So I, I used to describe it as like, <laughs> you, you know the movie Apollo 13? where yeah. the lamb brings the capsule, the heavy capsule back to earth. That mm. was like partners in health. It was like three people in an aluminum bubble trying to manage a board that was made up of all these heavyweights that was going to be the lifeline that would let, you know, them back into, you know, it, it, into the atmosphere, you know. <laughs> and John said, you know, the board meetings are, are, be, are not getting us there because we're overwhelming them. So could you please help me, you know, and go to work at Partners in Health? And when I was at BU and Samina, I apologize uh, uh, retroactively, I was spending like 40, 50 hours a week, you know, at Partners in Health, uh, visiting Rwanda, trying to help getting clinics set up, you know, um, trying to uh, figure out why, so, the fundamental uh, belief that I have about global health that I've had since I was a kid is that we have all these medicines, all these resources, all this knowledge about how to keep each other healthy. Yes, new medicines are important, but we already have a lot of medicines and a lot of protocols and stuff like that. Why can't we get this disseminated the, 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 into these settings? Like, what are the barriers that we can't overcome in disseminating what we already have a lot of drugs off patents and stuff like that still not available in these settings mm -hmm. and uh that was um that came for me i did that almost right after i got tenure 
Um, I, I was, um, I started to get involved with uh, lots of other organizations. Some of the leadership team at BU was like, why are you spending your time on this? Of course, I declared all this, got permission. Why are you spending your time on this? I was like, you know, I think I'm, I'm committed to uh, impact, to the truth, to trying to bridge those two things. And, uh, you know, for me, that's been a good space for me to be in. It's not as comfortable a space for a lot of other people. But I don't think I changed so much as I was like a racehorse at the gate, you know? Yeah, well, you were just returning to what you were always interested in and leverage, leverage your, you know, you were already writing about health industry. It feels like that, mm -hmm. you know? It feels like stop so connecting. <laughs> that, that's the most important. <laughs> um, yeah. and, 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 and I mean, personal journey aside, um, around that time, 2007, you published a paper with, with Joe, right? Joe Mahoney, who we also had the pleasure to interview yes. two weeks ago. Um, and um, in Strategic Org on the field of strategy, and the paper right. is titled The Field of Strategic Management Within uh, the Evolving Science of Strategic Organization. Um, so, I want to ask, you know, um, in, in that paper, you urged uh, strategy field to tackle um, untrackable and significant problems. Um, so 14 years later, uh, where do you think we are in doing that? I think we're good on the tackling and the solving the problems. There's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> I think a lot of people are working on the problems. Uh -huh. You know, we, we're not getting a lot of people working on 1950s I.O. You know, we, we got a lot of talented people now working on these problems. Amazing leaders in our field. I am getting, as J.Lo would say from the Bronx, goosies <laughs> thinking about how fabulous you all are. Like Samina, amazing job as division chair. Amazing, amazing job as division chair. Just being such a beacon of light and constructive productivity, keeping us in a community. Amazing, amazing job, you know. Uh, and and uh, Asim, you know, Zhao, Tim, Tammy, Tammy, I snookered into running for the board of governors. <laughs> Where's Tammy? Tammy just jumped off my screen. But uh, this is, uh, there you are, but this is, this is, um, you know, Michael, come on. This, this is an incredible uh, commitment that all of you have to, you know, not selling Doritos and to actually working on really important problems. And that's, that's, I mean, I'm being a little bit flipped there, but that's a change, you know, over the last 20 years, the, the halls of business schools were walked back in the um, you know early 90s by people who were brandishing consulting engagements and board memberships, and that culture of you know personal enrichment and you know and impact through uh, you know engagement at that in that kind of way with companies is 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 not the predominant culture of our field anymore, you know. And to think of, you know, the amount of talent on this call and the ways in which people are so committed to working on these really tough problems that matter a lot and, and to having a, a, a perspective on what we're doing together, it makes me so optimistic about the future. 
you know, much more optimistic about the future than I was when I was 30 years old, unbelievably. That's great to hear. Um, so, so, so as you, um, as you, and I mean, together with, you know, I think Joe uh, pursued this, uh, you know, what you, what you laid out in the uh, 2007 paper, right? So as you start to work on global issue of global health, um, uh, human trafficking, uh, poverty, and immigration issues. One of the things that's very, very notable about, you know, the way you do this is a collaboration. A collaboration not only kind of with our colleagues, but also across discipline, as well as with, you know, multiple um, organizations, such as, you know, we mentioned earlier, the medical school, policy school, the USAID, and WHO. So I'm um, very, very curious about, you know, what does that take and how is that like? Uh, could, you, could you tell us about that? Uh, sure. Um, maybe you can help to steer me in a direction that's interesting to you. Uh, but let me, let me just tell you a few, about a few of these collaborations and then, yeah. you know, please let me know what you think. So it's, 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 it's always been my inclination to want to really learn about, uh, about a phenomenon before studying it and writing about it and, and things like that. So, and, and I, I, it is very much in my, um, in my nature to, to move outside professional schools to do that. So um, I think of the, you know, an MBA, a, a business school, a law school, engineering school, medical school, these are professional schools. We really need uh, the disciplines and practitioners to elucidate the phenomenon that uh, we are uh, seeking to, be, to, to manage professionally, to be involved with professionally. So, uh, you know, I mentioned that I worked at Partners in Health. I also, through Partners in Health, you know, got to know some doctors, made some friends. Uh, I've uh, started to hang out with some uh, friends um, uh, uh, at BU who were uh, interested in trying to uh, uh, work in the field to try to eliminate some of these barriers. One of them was a, a new hire that we had named Jonathan Rosen, who was a tech transfer uh, expert at BU, very, very nice guy. And through Jonathan and some friends and partners in health, I met a fellow named Tom Burke. We were, I remember sitting at some restaurant or something with a group of friends at the, at the hospital, but I'd gone for a seminar, you know, at the hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital. And Tom and I kind of, as Jay Barney said the other day, kind of fell in intellectual love. You know, we were like talking about the same stuff and removing these barriers to access to these medicines. Why can't we get these medicines to them? I think we were sitting there with a couple of friends for two, three, four in the morning or something talking about all this stuff. And then Tom asked me if I would uh, help him. He was going to uh, Kenya to teach. This was a couple of years later. You know, we started kept in touch, you know, working with seminars, projects. He's applying for grants for different things. They want someone from business school. Can I help? You know, and I, you know, I, I what I would say, what I would, what I did, Zhao, as I said, yes, this is a very big problem for assistant professors that gets mm -hmm. relieved when you get tenure, Samina. I know Samina knows this because she's doing it, which is um, you can do things that you're not immediately rewarded for, but you think are important. Like, so Tom got a group of us together. We went to Kenya. We offered a course. 
I was the only one who was really experienced in developing courses. And so uh, I started to work with some of the other faculty members, built friendships there. Then you get data, then you get papers, then you apply for human trafficking grants. Then pretty soon you have 20 papers or 15 papers with people who are working on human trafficking and some grants in the hospital. I'm very proud of the fact that our division within the hospital where I'm chief economist is uh, now running a human trafficking uh, survivors clinic, one of the three in the country. So this, wow. these, you know, when you, when you work on, when you work with people who share your commitment to purpose mm -hmm. and your, your, um, your practice is to figure out what's really happening phenomenologically and then write papers that grapple with that truth, mm -hmm. um, you're spending your time, uh, I, I feel like for me, I'm spending my time now on things that are true to who I am and what I know, knowing that half of what I know is wrong. And if I know it's half, I will. You know, <laughs> that's like, it, 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 I'm not trying to click check boxes or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I, I see having tenure as, as a stewardship responsibility on knowledge and truth in society, whatever that is, you know? And, and, and um, I, 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 I've seen many friends who have pursued writing more papers, writing more papers, mm -hmm. um, eroded by that grind, mm -hmm. you know, um, even though I love writing papers. <laughs> it's, you know, where one's energy lies, right? And um, and you did mention you know when when uh, your your beautiful story was with uh, uh, with your co-author Tom, um, so so is there any translation that need to happen when you're you know when one is actually looking to talk across or, or how do you do it how do you navigate that well, uh, so I'm currently teaching I actually taught this course as a volunteer for many years but now mm -hmm. I'm getting credit for it. Uh, called Grand Challenges. And the reason I'm getting credit for it, by the way, is um, Brian Silverman, who negotiated that for me as my vice dean. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we, we gotta take care of it. Yeah, I mean, the, the unbelievable care that's been taken, taken of me by Joe, by Brian, by, um, you know, I mentioned my mentors, but many, many friends, Rebecca Henderson, you know, Will Mitchell, David Mowry, Dick Nelson, people who have, over the course of my career have been so generous and that tradition within our field that is at the heart of our community, it really is so wonderful and distinctive. And as former academy president is not universal, I can say across all of the divisions, it's something that we really need to preserve and cultivate. Uh, anyway, that, so I don't have very much difficulty talking with my friends, um, you know, Doctors, I've worked with many doctors, doctors, physicians tend to think that execution on an idea should just be like, get her done, you know, like get it done. Like it's, that's <laughs> not, it's not gonna be hard, you know, like, why is that hard? You know, and, you know, many of them are very responsive to the insight that the organizational challenge of actually making something happen is as significant as the technical challenge. So, 
I don't see the barrier so much as one of translation as it is of shining a light on issues that people who are trained differently haven't thought about. Right. There, there are some interesting, it's more, it's more difficult for me to talk with the other faculty who are teaching this Grand Challenges course with me who come from disciplines that are different than mine. So we, it's, it's co-taught by political science, engineering, public health, and me management and public policy. Mm -hmm. So the engineer, uh, an amazing friend named Yuling Chang, so I was like, tell me what to build, I'll build it. And you know, we're saying in global health that if you don't talk with the people in the field who are gonna use it about what they want it, what you're gonna make and involve them in that process of designing it, no matter how awesome the thing is, they're not gonna use it. <laughs> right. You know, and it's really hard to, for me, it's much more difficult to talk across disciplines within the university than it is to talk uh, with practitioners. Right. Like we had this argument, which the students thought was hilarious, about what the word value meant. <laughs> so the political scientist, the public health person, the engineer and the management scholar all thought value meant something completely different. You know, but it, we have this warmth and community among us that has led us to uh, have that transformational experience of being like fully committed to trying to help our students be more effective than we were when we were their age, right? Like we are delivering a world to the next generation that has like a lot of, a, a lot of really significant problems. How can we convey to these amazing young people, the best of what we've learned so that they are, they are enriched by that. And that is uh, something that has unified the four of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, people can sense when they run into that, that they want to invest in that. Mm -hmm. That's why we've been, we have this huge grant from the MasterCard Foundation, uh, that's uh, MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth that is supporting us in what we, this new project that um, we're doing called the REACH Project, which is about reaching the hard to reach. And we're taking groups of students uh, into remote parts of the planet, people who are remote, uh, 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 you know, socially, economically, and so on, and uh, trying to support them in understanding uh, how to intervene successfully uh, to uh, deliver important stuff, as the students say. For vaccines, birth registrations, financial support, financial education. And, and what we're finding is that, you know, a lot of industrial era systems, like the financial services system, the healthcare system that were built on principles that emerged around World War II, uh, fix your broken parts, achieve economies of scale, don't reach the hard to reach because they're beyond the boundary of what a scale economy can de deliver uh, cost effectively. And this, um, paralyzing emphasis on efficiency has um, made reaching the hard to reach look not worthwhile in many of these systems. So if you break a system using to, to reach the hard to reach with stuff they want, people want, people, those hard to reach people want, they don't want, they're hard to reach for a reason. <laughs> if you right. can reach them, you can actually uh, uncover systemic opportunities for innovation.
And that, the, that idea came out of the Grand Challenges course. And, you know, Joe Wong, my dear colleague from political science, is ran, started this REACH project. And I'm the chief researcher officer for that. We get this unbelievable grant for the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth to take these students to these places because they want real innovators. You get, you, they can sense the, um, I think they can sense the, 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 uh, the potential for impact, you know, that it can emerge when people are really committed to each other in that way. Yeah. Well, that sounds a really exciting, exciting class to teach. Um, and um, I, uh, so let me, let me encourage the audience to, um, you know, continue to put in your questions. We're going to turn into that fairly soon. Um, but the last area that I do want to touch upon um, is leadership, right? So while continue to uh, do path-breaking research and actually, you know, uh, you were talking about your generous friends, but I think you are the one who, who is so generous with your time and giving so much to, to the profession. Everywhere you go, uh, you take on, you know, more and more leadership position. I guess we just heard starting from undergrad <laughs> or even earlier, right? So, um, so I want to ask, you know, what drives that as well as, you know, what is the biggest learning moment you have had as a leader? So, you know, can I tell you a funny story? I'll try to answer your questions too. <laughs> so Costas Market is, so back when I graduated, you know, around 1990, um, many of the schools didn't have more than one student graduating each year. But so we, our cohort was kind of across school. So my cohort was Costas Marquitas. Joe was a couple of years ahead, um, Ian Coburn, who, who of course you know, um, uh, many others. Uh, Joe was, you know, a year ahead was the same cohort, you know, because there wasn't enough of us to, you know, um, Rebecca was two years, I think, three years ahead of me. Um, Alfonso was my year, Ashish, you know, and uh, Costas, and, and we all became very good friends. So Costas calls me up. He calls me up when I uh, was in my last year of the academy rotation, and he's like, Anita, this is Costas. Do not be a dean. Do not be a dean. Lovely <laughs> it's, impersonation. It's not worth it. <laughs> Boom. And every time I saw him for like three years, he was like, don't do it. <laughs> um, I remember sitting in in uh, BU faculty meetings with Ian, you know, and the dean would make a presentation and Ian would be sitting next to me and he'd say, Anita, don't talk. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> don't talk. You're going to get put in charge of something like the library. <laughs> don't. <laughs> don't talk. You know, I've had people, friends of mine from across the room text me in the middle of faculty meetings saying, saying, you know, this is going to be a huge amount of work, you know, please don't offer a point of view. So I don't know. I, I just, uh, I've, um, I, I, I've, there's so many things that interest me and that w what I need to do is triage and have kind of a criteria and a plan. Uh, so that I can make sure that I have enough energy to focus on stuff that's at the top of my opportunity set, as opposed to stuff that's just above the bar. Right. For me, that's been the 
challenge. And now that I'm 60 years old, uh, I turned 60 just a few, you know, some period of time ago, not long ago. I'm like, okay, this decade, I'm just going to do research. That's what I'm going to do. I remember when I turned 40, I was like, you know what? I, I would like to see the world. I would like to understand the world. And I did a huge amount of traveling um, when I was in my 40s. Um, when I turned 50, I remember thinking, I am really going to try really, really hard only to go into situations where I can say stuff that I really believe is both important and true, like breaking the Ashish trade off. You know, Ashish goes around saying, you know, if it's, if it's important, uh, you can't right. get the evidence. Right. If it's true, it may not be important, you know, because you can document things so fully. So right. uh, now I'm going to do research. So it, it, it's been my, you know, it's been a matter of trying to think about how I wanted, how I wanted, to, I was so well, well cared for by senior people that I really um, have struggled with situations where I feel like the senior people are not able to give them best selves to the next generation. Hmm. Right. Um, so um, I guess, you know, um, I guess the other question I wanted to ask on the leadership is, um, so now we obviously have huge amount of uncertainty, right? So what do you say to leaders who have to lead under this situation? Well, what do you think? I mean, what do you think? I mean, I mean, I, what we have to do is create the future we want. I mean, right. to me, we can frame what we're going through as uncertainty. I, right. uh, for me, that's what's happening is that all of the vulnerabilities, the unfairnesses, the the weaknesses in the structure of our society have now had a very bright light shine. Uh, shown on them. The, the problem for me is not, for me, doesn't seem to be so, so much uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I feel pretty sure that Black Lives Matter, that, you know, it's completely unacceptable for so many people in the world to not have food and decent health care and, mm -hmm. you know, the right to... Uh, human rights. I, I was just listening to my former colleague Shoshana Zuboff talk about the surveillance capitalism book that she's just that she's just uh, written, which is a brilliant book. Uh, and, you know, she made the point that anybody, anybody, ever, all of us have the right to all, all, have free speech. We have free speech. The, the variation in the right to free speech is not uh, variation in an invitation to express ourselves. It's the imposition of constraints on speech, variation constraints on speech, since all of us would speak our truth if we were not constrained. So thinking about the problems that we face mm -hmm. differently than how do we maintain the structure of what we have had that led to this disaster, and you know, thinking of uncertainties as threats to a system that was so broken that it put us this place, I think what we need to do is envision where we want to be, you know, five, 10 years from now in restructuring these systems and then start to build. What do we think? The resources, the capabilities, the governance structure, the transactional situations that we need to be able to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. So what's our strategy, our vision for how to build back better, as Sarah says, and then 
how do we get all of our resources and capabilities lined up to make that happen in healthcare and the financial and policing you know the policing um, problem sorry to go on here please do please do the policing problem that we're facing in my home country of the united states uh, and many other countries of the world but in the united states especially is directly an artifact of the entire colonial history of the united states it's it's we're still fighting slavery we're still fighting a failed reconstruction after the emancipation proclamation in the late 19th century joe will tell you all about the convict leasing system in which you know uh uh people of color but especially black people were you know incarcerated and then leased back to their former uh slave owners you know and 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 it, it just this went into the 1930s in the united states and the civil rights movement of the 1960s was a a tremendous advance but we were still left with this uh, incredible structural you want to build i mean okay we face a lot of uncertainty about whether or not we're going to uh, come out of uh, of a, a covid economy whole you know i think we have to envision how to come out of it with deep structural change that addresses these problems and then construct the that future you know not just us of course but everyone absolutely i think that's a you know conversation that i'm very 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 much looking forward to both at the monday's uh str plenary meeting uh, plenary uh, session as well as uh, tuesday's your session on uh, reimagining capitalism or you know how do we think about those structural changes so i'll post the links uh in the chat for folks who haven't checked, uh, haven't put that onto their calendar for Academy, please do. Um, so at this moment, uh, thank you so much, Anita. Um, and I, you know, I want to start to open up for audience q and I see a, a, a lot of questions uh, already. Uh, before that, shall we, um, can I propose we take a, take a photo? Uh, just to take capture this, take a take a photo. <laughs> yes, uh, take a screenshot uh, of of the moment, and it will be a it will be a memory for for all of us. I'm still looking back at Anita's. Uh, she did a cafe for the division last year around the same time, and I was just chatting. You know, it's hard to believe it's been a year uh, already. So so I'll, so everyone, if you if you're comfortable. Um, Opening up your camera and uh, uh, Pitosh, are we? Would you mind taking uh, taking a photo for us? Great, thank you. Maybe we can count. I'll count to three so everyone can look at the same same spot. One, two, three, two. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for spending your evening with us. Um, so, let me start uh, with uh, with Tammy. Uh, Tammy, you had a question about best practices on research portfolios. Yeah, so thanks, thanks Anita for your time and for all your insights. Um, we all know that you've been quite prolific, lots of impact, lots of projects, and, um, and that you always seem to have sort of a, uh, a variety of things that you're engaged in. And so I'm wondering if you have, what are kind of a, a few tips that you might have for managing uh, an ever-expanding portfolio, research portfolio, right? Do you try to have a certain number of projects in the queue at all at any one time? Is it a matter of managing co-authors? How do you balance out 
sort of juggling multiple projects and, and interests? You know, um, uh, I, I would jokingly answer this question by saying, I work on the project with the co-author that's most mad at me <laughs> at any particular time. But no, that's not, that's not actually so much true anymore. Um, so for me, what works now I, I, is, is um, I have a rule of no new projects until I finish uh, a project. So, you know, I, somebody just asked me yesterday to write a preface for their book and I was like, oh, I'd love to do it, but I can't, I promised myself I won't do any more new projects until I finish former projects. It's the challenge of finding the stuff that's at the top of the, that's at the top, the top of the opportunity set as opposed to above the bar, right? So I'm, I'm you know, over time working with fewer senior co-authors, more with my doctoral students, um, uh, only research now, I mean, teaching and research, right? I mean, and, and you know, I, my service commitments at the school tend to be related to uh, that the university professorship and being cross-appointed across different schools. So building community, being building research community between Rotman and other parts of the university, you know. So I basically, Tammy, let me see if I can be more coherent here. It's like having your research statement for it for five years from now conceptualized and then trying to make sure the stuff you do is aligned with that, including the people that you work with. Like, what am I, where am I going with this? You know. Thank you. Great. Like, what do I, where do I want this, how do I want to see this develop? You know, sorry. That's great. Um, so um, Abhi Molik had a related question on co-authorship. Um, would you Hi, like Ida. to? Yes, sure. Uh, hello. Thank you so, so much for that. Be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for that uplifting message. I think we all appreciate it very much. Uh, I think you actually answered part of my first question and I had two, so I'm just going to go ahead and ask you both. The first was your philosophy uh, about choosing co-authors and if that has changed over time. And the second is since you stand at the intersection of disciplines, uh, as you might know, a lot of public and nonprofit organizations are looking at businesses to be more business-like. Uh, and also, as we here are talking about uh, a more stakeholder-focused uh, for-profit organizations. Uh, do you have an ideal tie from working with so many organizations over your lifetime um, as to what is the, if, if you uh, will, a utopian stakeholder value maximized organization, real or fictional? So those were my two <laughs> questions. So on co-authors, you know, when I was more junior, I worked with senior people. Now that I'm more senior, I'm working with my peers and junior people. But it, I, I would say that, um, you know, I, 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 I'm trying, I'm, I try to have some, I'm trying to have some co coherence around impact. So sometimes the way I describe this to my students is I'm trying to, I'm trying to make a painting, I'm trying to make a picture, 
and each individual project is like a piece of the puzzle and other people are making pieces of the puzzle too journal projects are making pieces of the puzzle and i'm trying to understand the picture so if the picture for example um you know what do we need to do to raise to remove the constraints on the delivery of medicines uh to poor people is full of a lot of you know very well instrumented papers like by nber co-authors and uh, authors and so on that deal with patents and stuff what can i work on that's further downstream from the patent literature to try to understand what the next step is and how can i learn about that and you know who can i be involved with to try to make that happen like and you know how am i going to paint this painting or make this picture it depends a lot on how much we know about what the what 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 the phenomenon is you know uh, how i pick how i become engaged with co-authors and how I mean, I have some basic criteria, which is it has to be someone I can learn from and someone that I feel, um, you know, um, comfortable with and, and, and that I like, you know, and that I want to be uh, engaged with. On the second question of a stakeholder maximization. So I subscribe, as you know, very much to the, you know, Asim Kaul, uh, Jao Luan, uh, Jay Barney, you know, community of stakeholder theorists which is how can we how can we have graduated claims ostrom like principles how do we think about coalitions of stakeholders how they interact how can how can we get good governance here as opposed to uh, sort of the earlier stakeholder community which is so important freeman et al for example which was like you know there's a lot of uh, stakeholders out there that need to be considered i'm interested in the precision around that so if you ask me what is the most utopian balanced stakeholder organization uh, out there you know um let's see there are there are many many uh companies that have responded to covid with a stakeholder orientation that's been very inspiring inspiring to me um you know, really investing in their communities, uh, trying to retain their employees, uh, trying to make sure that the products and services that they offer are, are getting to the people that uh, need them most. Um, and, you know, I can't help uh, but be inspired by many of the health, the large hospital systems, for example, in the Boston area that have kept the doors open where the you know they're they're trying so hard and working so uh, with such ardency to keep the physicians and the staff and the medical uh, personnel uh, you know uh, safe and refreshed and at work and the patients safe and the community safe. I mean, I don't. I how about HHS? I I, I am like a Fauci devotee. That guy just gave yesterday a presentation with uh, uh sanjay gupta that was on the evening news yesterday it was a harvard public health lecture <laughs> and he and uh, uh and uh sanjay gupta from cnn who are obviously friends were saying like we need to be consistent we need to just get the message oh repeat it and develop it and more and more and more answer people's questions that's why i'm doing this just that consummate commitment to purpose I find uh, very, ins very uh, inspiring. Um, 
you know, I see organizations as tools for getting important things done. And I fundamentally have a relational understanding of community uh, as, as the fabric on which organizations uh, stand. So Asim Kowal calls me and asks me to do something, I'm gonna say yes. Like if he asks me for help or you know, he wants to accomplish something, he needs something, I'm gonna say yes. Because I have a friendship with him, I believe in him, I'm in this world with him. You know, I'm, we're committed to each other. I have many, many former students who are friends. I have many friends in academics that have, where both I and the friend have changed employers two, three times. You know, our friendships with each other, our commitment to each other way outlasts the organizations that we create value for. You know, it is, it is our connections with each other that create gr a great, organizational uh, capacity. So the organization has to serve the purpose of the people that believe and use that organization to accomplish things. And, uh, you know, leaders who, for me, um, act that way and, and use organizations uh, to, to do that, like Fauci, for example, um, I find very inspiring. It's not perfect, but way over the bar. Thank you so much. Right. Um, so Samina asks, um, what are you working on that you're most excited about? As well as uh, how much do you sleep? Oh, I sleep. I sleep. Samina, please sleep. Really. You deserve it. Everything will be okay if you sleep. I promise. <laughs> you know, Samina is a very great friend to me and a, 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 an incredible um, leader and scholar, as you know. And, uh, you know, I don't know if everybody knows all the things Samina does, but uh, you have an amazing commitment to, what do you do, summer summer stuff in, is it in Central America, Guatemala? Yeah, the, this summer the kids are virtually teaching kids in Nicaragua because we can't go. But virtually we, teaching. Virtually teaching, that's what we're doing this summer. But you've, you've brought your family, since they were very small kids, into that situation so that they really understand more about the world than they might understand if they just were in, you know, northern Massachusetts in their bubble, right? But Isn't I was that the idea? People like you to, to make sure I did that too. So, thank you. So, you know, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 whenever I get bummed out, Sarah always says to me, go hang out with your students. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, 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 I don't really ever get bummed out anymore about like deans and stuff. Costas has taught me as long as they're getting it like 50, 60, 70%, right? Let them, you know, <laughs> you know, that's fine. That's good. And we're way, way beyond that at Rotman. Rotman's amazing. I am suggesting we should do the Meet, Meet the Scholar interview with Samina. I am suggesting that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> project you're working on now that you're excited about? Uh, so I was mentioning just before the call that I, um, that I, so I have for years worked uh, 
uh, with some friends at GovLab at NYU, which is run by the amazing Beth Novick. No, Beth is a, uh, a lawyer by training uh, and a professor at the Tandon School of Engineering at NYU. This is the old Brooklyn Polytech uh, at M that NYU acquired. And Chandrika Tandon, who is the benefactor of that, was my manager at McKinsey in 1988. So anyway, uh, uh, Chandrika is the is 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 uh, very committed to GovLab, and GovLab is uh, doing uh, a lot of work on innovation and governance, and it's mostly in the political sphere. Uh, uh, and I was supposed to be on sabbatical visiting NYU GovLab uh, this uh, semester, but um, with COVID, here I am, you know, trapped in my Cape Cod cottage uh, for, uh, for 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 the summer. Uh, that's a joke. I. I it, it's a blessing to be here. But uh, through GovLab, I am now, I now have uh, access to cell phone data uh, through an opt-in uh, application. So it's not the big data set that Safeguard has, but uh, the, it's an opt-in thing uh, for Canadians, for uh, Canadians, 200,000 or something Canadians. And we're looking at the relationships between mobility and proximity from January 1st to August 1st. So I'm doing this with a, grand, a brand new a doctoral student named Gabriel Cavelli. He's amazing, so nice, and so wonderful. And we are finding, for example, that between January 1st and March 31st, uh, there was a certain level of mobility uh, among Canadians. Mobility means you travel, you travel a certain distance on average from where, you, where your phone is at night. So let's, you know, my phone, let's say, is right here on this couch at night. I might travel, for example, on average over a course of a week in the winter, let's say, on average, you know, seven miles, 10 miles or something. I don't know, something like that, let's say. Okay, so that's our mobility index. And then proximity is how many other cell phones is my cell phone close to for 15 minutes or more a day? Okay. And we're, we're looking at both proximity and mobility of Canadians across geographies. And we're finding, of course, a huge drop in both of those things in March. And now we're finding that mobility is actually quite a bit higher than it was in the winter. Mm -hmm. But proximity is as low as it was in April. Okay. So that would mean that I'm now traveling, but I'm not interacting with more people. Right. So proximity is at the same level. Now what Gabriel and I are doing and with our friends from GovLab is starting to think about, okay, how is that different for basically essential workers or low-income people versus high-income people? Proximity and mobility, how is that changing? How is, if the average is back up, are there differences underlying the waterline in the averages? So we're looking to relate this to socioeconomic uh, factors. Um, and then also, of course, COVID infection rates by week, by subdivision of the census, 293 divisions. So I'm pretty excited about that because it may have a big impact on public policy. And Gabriel's going to use this data for his dissertation. Amazing. But I'm also working on some other things that I'm excited about too. I have a really interesting paper um, with Greg Distelhorst, who is an assistant professor in our group. He was a postdoc with me. And we're looking at how companies downstream can influence uh, uh, supply chain employment practices and why it's so hard for them to do that. So that's, uh, I'm excited about that paper too.
So all of these projects are about how companies can eventually intervene to make things better, usually for poor people. That's usually where I go. Um, Low-income people, essential workers, people who are not advantaged. Right. You know? Very cool. Um, so uh, let, me, let me next call on Singzi. Singzi, um, and, and afterwards I'll call on Elena because I think your questions are uh, somewhat related. So Singzi? Yeah, I was just going to defer to Elena and say, but I'm going to ask it um, and say that her question. Thank you so much, Anita, for, for doing Singzi, this, for so taking nice the time. Very nice yeah. to see you too. My question was, you know, when you, I, I thought of the question when you're talking about teaching and students and getting them on board to, to work with you in, on different projects in this grant, uh, big grand challenges uh, course that you put together. I'm wondering how do you reach out to the students who are not interested in that, right? Because we know very well, we're still, I think we're seeing the mix of students changing really, really quickly. But we're still we still have in business schools for very good reasons. Students who are not interested in the public policy questions, they're not interested in sort of these big questions that they would much rather have somebody else solve for them rather than uh, have to, you know, to so, think about themselves. Yeah. So <clears throat> no, of course, um, students, just as all of us are, have diverse interests. So. Um, I, first of all, if I have a student who seems checked out or falls asleep in class, I, I never take that personally. I think that's the student who was up all night studying. You know, that's the student who's ill. That's the student who has a cold. That's the student who's stressed out or something. So one of the things I'm doing, I do, is I, I try to talk to the student, you know, send them a note. Can we have a Zoom call? Can we, can I, what's going on with you? How are you? How are you? Um, you know, who are you? <laughs> you know, why are you here? What's going on? I'm meeting with, um, I'm teaching, guess what, core strategy this year, and I'm meeting with all 140 students one on one for half an hour before the class begins. Um, I just, I just, I just am worried that the, the technology is not going to allow me to be connected with them if I don't do that. Why, why not show up? You know what I mean? It's such an honor to be a teacher. Um, uh, what I've found over the years is that, um, oh gosh, I sound like my mother. Um, by the way, I was walking down a hall in the medical school not too long ago, and there was a long hall with a mirror at the end, and I didn't realize it was a mirror. And as I walked by, I looked down the hall and I thought, oh, that woman down there looks just like my mother. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, I, what I've, what I've, what I've, uh, what I've noticed is that uh, if you, if you, if you care about students, so I had one student this year, just this year, who was on a REACH team that I was working with, uh, going to Rwanda to study drone delivery of medicines, delivery of medicines, and he was always late to meetings. He was an African, he was a student from Africa, and uh, he was always late to meetings, and he, uh, he didn't seem engaged. So I pulled him aside, and I was like, his name is Modestus. Modestus, you know, how are you? Like, what's going on with you? Well, it turns out he had four exams. He, he, he has no support system in Toronto. He does, doesn't really know anyone in Toronto. He can't, he has like challenges with his housing. He has all this stuff going on with him. You know, 
I had no idea how difficult it was for this student to just make the mechanics of his life work well. So that then that was a matter of getting him some resources, you know. So just finding out what's going on with people, I think, for me is what I do. I don't know if that's helpful to you. I hope. Well, I was thinking more. So that that's very very helpful. But I was thinking more about the students who don't want to have the conversation about climate change who just sort of from the very beginning they're never going to sign up for your class because i'm guessing it's an elective maybe it's maybe it's not grand challenge is an elective course yeah. Strategy is not. yeah the grand challenges course right so we're never going to show up there so how do we right if we're thinking about it the switching from one equilibrium to another how do we make sure that we reach out to as many people as possible faster so that we don't have to have as you know too many years of conversations about is there climate change versus no it's like you know uh versus the alternative whatever that i mean it's still the same thing which is meeting with the student and finding one by everybody, one yeah everybody's got something you know that they're that they're that they care about you know if there's really someone who's so who's so broken or disabled or unable to uh, connect or express themselves, then I don't push. That's, I, I'm trying to create uh, an environment that's compelling. And, you know, you can't push on a string. I, I'm going to reach out. If I, if I can connect with a student, I will meet them where they are and try to understand what's going on with them and try to, um, tr try to, try to serve that student. That's my job, you know, but if, if someone doesn't want to do that and, and ultimately hits me with a wall, and that's their choice. That's 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 something they can do. Poor poor students living a paradox, right? Because they're a student in a place they don't want to be, um, or maybe. But that that I I can only offer to help resolve that paradox. I can't resolve it. The person the person may want that paradox. Elena. Uh, hi. Uh, so, firstly, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, Anita, it's you. very inspiring to hear you talking. And also, like, well, since it's the last uh, meeting, I just want to say thank you to all STR leadership. I mean, it has been amazing to attend those meetings and like to feel connected to the uh, you know, academic world despite COVID. Um, so, my question is about. Um, Kind of, uh, how do you see the field developing when it comes to uh, well, non-market actors? So I'm, I'm really interested in the role of non-profit actors as like active agents who can shape firms' behavior. And I had several instances, you know, talking to people not, not in my well, not in my department, uh, but still like both academics and practitioners who would be like, ah, but like it's not strategy. I mean, it's non-profit, so it's something unrelated or irrelevant. Um, and at the same time, I mean, obviously we have already a bunch of people here who are working on like interaction between firms and nonprofits, and I can see this, you know, there are papers being published. So, so I was wondering, like, what's your take, uh, whether you see it as a somewhere where the mainstream strategy is going to go, or it's going to like be maybe a more specialized niche? Yes. This relates to a question or an aspect of the question that Abby asked me that I didn't fully answer. Um, so <clears throat> I'll tell you what I think. Uh, I do think it's going to be mainstream. I think that the non-market strategy uh, scholars in our field and topics in our field are going to be focusing more on markets 
and the non-ness of them, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, the governance structures of the organizations that exist outside them. Uh, in, in other words, I, it's really hard to think of very many places where there's actually a, a, a scaled up market. We have a farmer's market in the town here, but there's very, most other transactions that we study in business schools don't happen through the kind of market exchange that is that is that is um, uh, that is that is characterized by economics, the, the 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 presentation and economics of the intersection of supply and demand. It is it is there's a different methods of sorting the way that uh, transactions arise that we don't fully understand. I also think that each of us is both a markets and non-market actor at the same time in different spheres of our lives that each of us is a public uh, has is, is part of public uh, sector organizations private organizations many of them at the same time private uh, non-market organizations that go well beyond nonprofits for example um, friendship groups and uh, you know uh, community organizations and you know, uh, uh, alumni groups and stuff that are that are not that don't have a formal governance structure that is aligned with any of the models that are salient in the literature today. So, this idea of governance design that so many of you have contributed to over time, I think, is only begin. It's in its nascency. We're just starting to understand how how to set up um, ways in which stakeholders can interact formally or informally to actually make uh, you know um, make stuff happen that, uh, that that that's important and I think that's at the very heart of strategy uh, yesterday I think it was yesterday Harbeer was uh, doing his session and a couple of us who were asking him you, you know aren't there fewer diversified co companies he works on diversification and he's like, yeah, you know, public, the prevalence of widely traded, public, publicly traded, widely traded, large diversified companies has, you know, been going down for the past 25 years. You know, investment decisions are being made increasingly by private capital, you know, by nominated investors and so on. So there is so much work to do to try to understand the proliferation of different types of governance models. We've just barely scratched the surface. And Asim, yeah. you're, you're in charge of that. <laughs> Zhao, you're in charge of that. Um, great. <laughs> So, Tim, I think you were you were at that conversation yesterday and talked a little bit with Harvey about that. Pardon me, sorry. Uh, so, Elena, is that uh, do you have a second part of the question or? Okay. No, that, that, no, that was it. Okay, great. Um, so, let me next call on Jen uh, Ramel. Hi, um, hi, Anita. Um, so I love the work that you've done and the impact that you've had sort of outside of academia, leveraging your research and your position to do different things. And I'm just curious, um, 
sort of on your perspective on the institutional change and maybe if there's any shift in that happening for younger faculty or if it's always going to be a wait until you get tenure before you're able to go out and make an impact. Um, and if there's anything that you think junior faculty or junior scholars can do now um, to sort of help push that, um, push the field, push the institutions to sort of accepting more of an impact earlier in a career. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting very tired of this uh, dreary focus on tenure, you know? Uh, now, let me say that it's it, tenure is has an enables it, it it enables you to do a lot of things that you can't do otherwise. But many people don't change their behavior after they get tenure to actually, you know, grasp some of those opportunities. For me, Jen, I've I've had the experience of the the community uh, uh, supporting me through my entire career, um, no matter what challenges that I've faced. The, the hardest thing is to know yourself and to take care of yourself. So to, to really, um, for me, I, the, the real, the, the, the really, the invitation I would offer to you as a, as a perhaps untenured scholar, I'm not sure, I imagine you might be untenured, is that it? Uh, yeah, I'm actually a postdoc, so a postdoc professor. Yeah, yeah. is 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 to not let pursuit of this thing called tenure, you know, which is as much a function of whether someone sneezes right and who talks first in a meeting, and you know, and you know whether somebody's in a bad mood or somebody doesn't come to the meeting or blah, 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 or you know some department chair has a favorite project that you're not aligned with or whatever, don't wreck your, you know, wonderful, you know, youth, you know, worrying about something that you can't control. Be yourself, which requires sort of really um, owning a point of view and nurturing that and allowing that to develop and evolve. I really see us from doctoral students all the way through to senior faculty as having this enormous uh, responsibility of stewardship of knowledge in society. And, you know, having some sense of what you really want to know and what you really are going to bring to any organization that's interested in, in that is, I think, the, the most important thing. And taking care of yourself, you know, and not letting yourself get super stressed out by stuff that you can't control. I don't know. I mean, I think if you do great work, then you'll be fine. And you'll like yourself. Thank you. Yeah, and Jay also, you know, echoed the sentiment. Jay Cock also echoed the sentiment in the chat. And, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I, I was I mean, uh, sorry, Anita. Sorry for the. I was great at doing this. Pardon me. Oh, yeah, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, it's not like I've been great at doing this. It's just, you know, somebody wrote in the chat, what would you do differently? I, I would, I would if, if I were restarting my career, I would start right where I am now, you know, in terms of the topics that I'm working on. Um, and, uh, you know, I would, I would enjoy it more. I would, the, the challenge is enjoying the profession 
and, 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 and not getting so ground down by our, you know, silly culture of torturing each other about tenure. Sorry, Jay, please. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, um, so and Jen, if I will, um, I was saying that maybe one way to think about this to free yourself a little bit is to think of tenure as providing due process to the termination decision. Because actually, if we seriously think about it, tenure is not an iron rescue and it shouldn't be, right? Yeah, it just gives, protects you, gives you that academic freedom but uh, you know, there are a thousand ways to skin a cat. You know, one reason why some people don't change after they get tenure is, is that they still want, for example, cost releases. They want salary increases. They're looking for the endowed chair. And so, you know, it, it's not as if before tenure, you think of tenure as motivating you. And after tenure, there could be other things that motivates you still along that same trajectory. Yeah. You know, the 24 people, I think I've attended about half of the, so, you know, the, 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 you know, none of them are, are doing, are doing, are, are worried about that stuff you just mentioned, Jay. None of them, I don't think any of the ones that I saw, I mean, Joe Mahoney is on like this mission to try to address prison reform. And, and, and it's just, that is like all he cares about and God bless him. That's what he cares about. And what an amazing choice. I, I love him. Uh, he's just, uh, it's, it's incredible what he's doing and that's, and he's doing it Joe's way. And he's, you know, he's got pictures of people in his slides just like he did before, you know, and that's what he does and that's who he is. And I, God bless him. He, you know, um, you know, Jay Barney is in love with the ideas. He's into the stakeholder theory thing. He wants to figure out how co-specialization evolves. That is what he's interested in. The people who are miserable when they're my age are the people that are trying to beat somebody else at a publication. And the, or the people that are trying to, you know, that are measuring themselves versus other people and, you know, wondering how come that guy got an award and I didn't, or, you know, or trying to get a course released. Most of the people who are happy my age love teaching and are not trying to get course releases. I'm on sympathetic. I'm not even not showing up for my class. You know, it's the challenge is enjoying the job and not letting like all these little bean counting things like take, take over your enjoyment. One of the reasons I'm so close with Ian Coburn, who's a great friend of Samina's too, I know, um, and Manuela, you know, Ian, is he, whenever Ian sits around, he's like, you know, he's Anita, you know, what are we going to do, you know? And then he, after he thinks about, you know, how he can make an impact in, um, on a conversation where uh, received wisdom or, or the facts in the media are not aligned with what he believes is true, then he tries to go change that. That's what he does. He's, he's, uh, and he worries about that. Like, how can we, how can we fix um, the public conversation? How can we influence the public conversation about how to get medicines uh, developed or how to get a vaccine or how to, you know, uh, address the inequalities that uh, have been so pervasive in this uh, pandemic? He, 
even though he's worried, he's, he's, he's fulfilled, he's happy, he's actualized. And that, you know, that's the challenge. I see you have a wonderful uh, uh, collaborator with you, Jay. What's your, what's your child's name? So this is um, Adam, and at oh, one hey, Adam. point, yeah, Adam, Adam, say hi. Hi. <laughs> Can you tell hi. us one, one silly thing about your dad? Okay. I don't think he heard me. <laughs> I asked him if he could tell us one silly thing about you. <laughs> I, I think he's come again to ask me for, you know, something, yeah. Maybe, I don't <laughs> know, the, the phone or... Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> yeah, there he goes. <laughs> um, so let me let me now turn to Asim. You had a question. Sure. Um, you know, I'm not gonna give up on this opportunity. Although, um, so um, actually, let me say before before I ask my question, um, you know, to 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 Jen and I think Elena's point. Um, if you're not getting support for this work, you're talking to the wrong people. The person you should be talking to is Anita McGann, right? So, <laughs> like, seriously, I mean, I don't, when I get down, I don't go talk to my students, although I probably should, but, you know, um, I, I, I go look at what Anita is writing or I go look at what Anita is working on and it's always inspiring and it's always, you know, I mean, I still remember, Anita, you, you came to Wharton and gave this talk about private military contractors way back when I was a PhD student. And I think, you know, that has stuck with me as, you know, yeah, sure, that's organizations. We can study organizations this way. So, I mean, I just think, I, I think there's plenty of, I, I think, and you've always been so generous with your time that I think it's just, I, I think it's just, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think other people may have taken care of you, but I feel that you've taken care of me more than anybody else. So thank you for that. Let me oh ask, goodness, um, let me get to a question before like Zhao shuts me down because she's looking at me saying, you always do this, you ramble and like, I have to fix things. Um, but, uh, you know, right at the beginning when we were talking about the caves, we were talking about, um, you know, you were mentioning, you know, being a woman, being gay, kind of in this profession, not really sort of a profession that sort of was dominated by white men at, at the time. Um, how do you think about representativeness and inclusion in the academy uh, and how that has evolved it, how you've seen it evolve over your career and, and what more do we need to do, if anything? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I, th so I, I think the evolution in, so w we're super lucky, uh, I want to just emphasize, we're super lucky, obviously, to be among scientists, to be among people who, um, you know, appreciate knowledge and are interested in the truth and, uh, or their truth. And uh, so, you know, I think the field at the beginning for me was very normative, you know, it, it, there was a lot of norms, but you get people to think about things and then they, they developed, you know, they develop. And that happened relatively fast in academic life. And, uh, you know, this profession uh, of strategy, of strategic management, I think has always been very warm and accepting of, me and hopefully of you and and of you know other people uh each of us as well i mean uh, i you know this this profession this 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 
uh, Zoom call worthy, you know, group of people that are in the SDR division of the Academy of Management has been my greatest uh, supporters over the, the course of my uh, entire career. And uh, I remember uh, uh, John, John MacArthur, who just passed away, was the dean of Harvard Business School when he found out I was gay. It's not like I ever hit it, but like um, it never came up. Like, you know, it, 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 but it, over time, people notice, you know, you're not showing up with a spouse and that's, that, you know, and so, and when he heard this, he initially was irritated with me. Um, and he was irritated with me, I think, because he, he told me that he, he felt he invested so much in me. And if I didn't have the potential to, you know, to be successful, then he was, he was, and then he came back and apologized. So people think, you know, over time and, you know, um, one of the, one of the choices that um, for me has been a very active choice and it's not so much active anymore. It was more active early in my career is to not cut ties with people who did that, you know, to, to stay engaged with people and to try to sustain a relationship with people even, and other people had different strategies. For, 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 for addressing that. Is there more to do? There is a huge amount more to do. Um, we have a lot of uh, the same kinds of privilege in our communities uh, that are in society at large. Uh, there is there's not a single faculty member who is black on the Rotman School faculty. That is just outrageous. That is not acceptable. That cannot be our future, that has to change. That has to change right away. Um, you know, th th there is, we, we, the first challenge is inclusion. The second challenge is overcoming structural barriers to equity, <laughs> you know, so that someone who is black, someone who is gay, someone who is a woman, someone who is in any of the vulnerable categories, those less privileged categories actually actually has access to the same opportunities as and and the same <laughs> i want to put that differently sarah's taught me a lot about this the same opportunities may stink <laughs> like i said that may not be a high enough bar how do we envision a better way of interacting than let's say the profit-oriented corporations that you know, we're so governing of the culture at HBS when I was an assistant professor. We, we ought to be able to do better than that, you know, uh, better than that. So, you know, th there's a lot of work to do um, and it involves understanding each other. And of course, it makes this whole, this whole effort really relies on uh, everybody wanting to do it, which I feel very comfortable with in our strategy community. You know, I think everyone wants to do, pretty much wants to do this. Maybe some people haven't thought about it enough, but, or haven't thought about it a lot, but we get there. Sorry, Tim. Oh, that's okay. Um, uh, hey, um, you've been involved in the leadership at STR and an AOM, uh, and you're involved in lots of different organizations. So, uh, I'm one of the things I'm really proud of over the last few months. People like Asim and Zhao and and some through Samina's leadership, we've kind of 
I think we've responded reasonably well to COVID, as you alluded to. What's the next step? How, how else might we improve the division that we're in, other than continuing the, the initiatives that were brought forth in the last four or five months? So let's think about the field of strategy um, and its evolution and uh, what that means for our community. So as we've discussed, even Elena's question, uh, Avi's question, the world around us has to be transformed. And we have to find a way to build back better after COVID. We have to deal with climate at scale. We have to, the SDGs, you know, have to be our sort of North Star uh, rather than profitability. So let's imagine what our field looks like five years from now if that's what we're working on. You know, we're working on, as Elena's question suggested, how do we get resources and capabilities aligned, not with more consumption, not with appreciating stock market performance, not with growth in a conventional sense of more Doritos, but uh, greater equity, greater access, greater organizational effectiveness through the deployment of stakeholder capital that hasn't yet been deployed, like let's say, you know, the third of the people on the planet who are living with less than $1 a day. There's a lot of interesting ideas here about questions about what we're actually trying to organize to accomplish. You know, we need, even the SDGs are still pretty productivity oriented. Um, if what we're trying to do is create greater quality of life, how do we, how do we use organizations to marshal human action to create that quality of life? How do we envision that? You know, I think there's a lot of connections that we could develop to other divisions, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, not just the big ones like organizational theory and OB, but there's a lot of work to do to build bridges between the OB community and strategy. You know, that the, there's a lot of insights about individual actualization that could uh, start to be our dependent variable, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of work that uh, we could do to bridge to other divisions. There's, there's, a, there's a, a great deal that we can do uh, in our teaching and in, in trying to update and revise the curriculum. There's a great deal of organizing to do. COVID is going to lead and the whole environment around business schools is going to lead us to much more undergraduate programs, specialized masters and a little less MBA and people from all over the world. Why should 50 of us be teaching the same material. Can we create a centralized body of material where a CMCAL teaches about what you're working on and you create the module and then Tim Falta can teach a CIMS material and then blend that with Jen's and blend that with Georgina's and blend that with Cindy's and bring in Tammy stuff and Pinoche and so on, you know, and then your work as a professor is interacting with your students and bridging the students' connection to that material. So the, the division could help a lot with creating that body of, of work, that body of teaching materials and, and helping us learn from each other how to get our students to be connected to that and to be inspired so that since he doesn't have anybody who's just trying to mail it in in a world where the mail doesn't work anymore you know so there, it, 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 we need we need 
to think about this on a research front, um, you know, enriching the tool. So there's a lot of work to do with reaching to other divisions and other disciplines outside the AON. Political science, you know, sociology, yes, but also anthropology, the humanities, you know. You know, Asim, one of the things, as you know, we have one of your early books on our coffee table in Toronto. <laughs> Can I tell the, the community about this? So Asim is a poet and he's written poetry and we have his book uh, at home. And, um, you know, it's beautiful what you've, what you're, what you've written. You're, you're incredibly talented at, at, at everything you do. You know, wh what do you, what do you get from that, that um, allows you to, you know, actualize, you know, in, 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 in the fullness of who you can be. I don't think we have any understanding of, 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 of how to create value in that sense uh, yet. And there's a lot of work to do in our, in our profession, I think, to try to reach even beyond the traditional boundaries of management to understand that. That's fantastic. So um, last but not least, um, I'm going to turn this into our division chair, um, Mina, for a lightning round of questions. All right. Oh, I like the sound effects, Joe. That's awesome. All right, Ania, you've given us so much of your time. I have six minutes left. So this is going to be like fast fire, fun questions. Okay, you ready? I guess uh, so. All right, favorite dessert? Chocolate, dark chocolate. Is milk chocolate or dark chocolate? Dark, dark, definitely dark chocolate. All right, thank you. Um, favorite place that you visited? You mean uh, university or do you mean no, just like anywhere in the world? All over the world. Um, gosh, there's so many. Rwanda, probably someplace in Africa. Let me say Rwanda. Okay, Rwanda. Um, do you read fiction or nonfiction when you're not? I read both. I read a lot of historical fiction. Mm, historical fiction. Okay. But I could, have like lots of books going. So I know you've listened in on a lot of these. So you've heard some of these questions before. So now I have to change it up. If you could be any animal, which would you be and why? Um, let's see. It's hard to choose. Maybe a whale? Why? <laughs> I don't know. They just seem like so. They've got so much wisdom, and they're very patient. I like that. All right. Um, if you could lead one agency of the United Nations, which one would it be? UNICEF. UNICEF. All right. For children's development. All right. Yeah, children's development. Yeah. Um, if you could have dinner with one historical figure who's deceased, who would it be, and why? Uh, Nelson Mandela. How do, how do you how do you spend that much time in prison and come out transformed so so and be so generative yeah, just amazing can i also say i have some questions for jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> me too um <laughs> someone who's living who would it be uh dinner for someone who's living with someone who's who's living that that you haven't yet had dinner with um, let's see. 
Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> what would you ask him? There are so many things, but I think, you know, I think there's, there's, I, I, it would be as much about just trying to understand how to, how to get through, how to get through. Anita, you're a true optimist. Yeah, she picks, she picks a hard challenge, doesn't she? All right. Two more fun ones. Um, if you had a superpower, would you pick invisibility, flight, or reading people's minds? Reading people's minds. Mm. Definitely. If you were stranded on an island, but you had all your necessities, what non-essential thing would you bring with you? Uh, pen and paper. Mm. Like right. a lot of paper. <laughs> <laughs> And last, I mean, I don't know when, I'm convinced you don't sleep, even though you say you sleep, but I, I want to know, and I think we all want to know, what are your hobbies and what do you do to relax and unwind? So, um, we, I mean, I read, I really enjoy reading, so uh, there's that. I did buy an art studio in town um, around the corner here, and I'm enjoying being down there and being part of the artist community here. Um, and, uh, I've, I've, you know, I think I may have mentioned to you that I built a boat a couple of years ago. I'm planning to build a, build another one. So I like a lot biking and kayaking and, uh, I enjoy, I enjoy, uh, having to do stuff with my hands that's, uh, different than, you know, that takes me completely, that re still requires a lot of thinking, but takes me com out of our profession a little bit. Outside to get a break. Yeah. Yeah. To get a break. Yeah. Thank you, Anita, so much. Um, I, I want to tell you something, which is, you know, um, my advisor, of course, you know, was Will. Um, yes. I really do think of you as my second advisor because you mentioned so much about mentorship and, and um, in our field that, you know, we've all had mentors, we mentor others. And certainly I think you are one of the earliest mentors I've ever had. And I'm so proud to say is one of my mentors. So, Thank well, you. what I can retire now, you know. <laughs> You're thank you, Samina. That's so uh, meaningful and beautiful and and uh, touching. I really, really care about you so much, and and I'm so grateful to hear that. Thank you very much. And and thank you for for being a great leader. You're you you inspire all of us. I think we're on this call and well beyond. And many others are going to be able to watch this video on our YouTube channel. And I think you will keep inspiring exponentially. So thank well, you for the division. Con congratulations to everyone in leadership for uh, this amazing innovation that you've done. And let's look forward to a wonderful Academy meeting. That's right. Uh, Jao, I'm gonna turn it over to you for closing words. Yeah, thank you so, so much, Anita. Um, you know, as, as Tim was putting here, you're amazing, you're inspiration. I mean, for me personally, you know, I, I look, as Asimo was mentioning earlier, uh, I share completely that sentiment. And I feel like the time listening to you is just never, never enough. But, um, but I am fully aware that we've already taken two hours of your time. So really, really appreciate everything uh, you're doing. And everything. Well, thank you so much. Everybody take care of yourself. Please wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone.